0: My guest today is Professor David Chammers. Professor Chammers is an Australian philosopher and a cognitive scientist specializing in the area of philosophy of mind. He is Professor of Philosophy and Director of the Centre for Consciousness at the Australian National University. He is also Professor of Philosophy at New York University. Professor David Chammers is with me in the studio. Uh, David, thank you very much for being with us and welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thanks, it's a pleasure to be here. David, tell us about yourself, about your education and about your research interests as a philosopher. Uh, well, I started out
1: actually in mathematics and science. As a, as a kid, I was a science nerd interested in understanding everything about the world I did an undergraduate degree in mostly in maths at the University of Adelaide in Australia. Went on to Oxford to uh do a doctorate there, but along the way I got extremely interested in uh in philosophy and in particular in the uh in the mind. It seemed to me that you know, mathematics and physics right now are I mean, there's a lot of extremely interesting problems, but somehow not quite as exciting as it was, say, three or four hundred years ago when people were just figuring out things for the first time and the frontiers were wide open. Whereas the questions right now where, you know, we're at the stage of we're still just looking for you know, a Newton or a Galileo who's going to figure out fundamental questions is really in the study of the mind. And in particular, human consciousness. Consciousness is the one thing that we really don't understand. So I ended up switching from mathematics to philosophy and cognitive science and doing my PhD in that area. And I've stayed in, uh, in philosophy for about the 20 years or so Since then, I guess consciousness has remained my primary research interest. The the issue of how consciousness fits into the physical world, how we can develop a theory of it scientifically, whether it can be explained, although I've got any number of other interests at the same time in cognitive science, in the philosophy of language, metaphysics, epistemology.
0: But consciousness for me is right at the core. Uh, Your description of consciousness is that we can... Say that a being is conscious when there is something it is like to be that being. Talk to us about that.
1: Yeah, well, consciousness, as I understand it, is subjective experience. It's the Mm -hmm. first-person perspective on the world, what it feels like to be a sentient being. The formulation you mentioned is actually one due to the philosopher Thomas Nagel, who about uh, 40 years ago now wrote an article called what is it like to be a bat? Mm-hmm. And he formulated this question by saying, well, we, you know, as humans, it's awfully hard to understand what a bat's conscious experience would be like. And what is it like to feel all that sonar, to process all this stuff, not by vision, not by hearing, but by sending out little sonar beeps, beep, 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 and getting them back. There must be some very distinctive experience of that. And Nagel was saying it's awfully hard, maybe impossible, for us to know what's that like. So... Nigel said, in, answering the que- in asking the question, what is it like to be a bat? That's really a way of asking, what is the subjective experience of a bat like? So likewise for us. When I talk about what is it like to be me? What is it like to be you? Those are really questions about the subjective conscious experience of being us. And, you know, the difference between beings which are conscious, like humans, and beings which are not conscious, like cups, perhaps. Is you know, There's something it's like to be a human. There's nothing it's like to be a
0: cup. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what about animals?
1: Well, I mean, this, the animals raise all kinds of interesting questions here. Most of us, I think, are inclined to think that, you know, monkeys are conscious and mm-hmm. uh, dogs are conscious. So there's something. There's probably something it's like to be a dog or a cat. As you go down to mice or fish or flies, people start to, uh, start to wonder, or worms, is there something it's like to be an earthworm or not? One trouble with consciousness is it's not something you can directly measure mm-hmm. from the outside. From the outside, you can measure behavior and very subjective science but consciousness is a subjective experience only available directly on the inside so you know we don't know for sure mm-hmm. how far it goes down
0: the natural order mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but what is the difference between consciousness and have a sense of self because animals uh, might have a sense of self
1: i actually think that consciousness is something simpler mm-hmm. than a sense of self or self self-consciousness i'd be a little bit surprised if earthworms had that much of a sense of self uh, dogs and cats may have a fairly rudimentary sense of self, but consciousness for me involves not just consciousness of oneself and one's inner goings on, but consciousness of the world. So when I sense, uh, when I look at a red square, it feels like something to me. When I uh, hear my own voice, that's got some subjective quality. So consciousness in the first instance is consciousness of the world. And I'm pretty sure that dogs and cats have that. Consciousness of oneself comes later. Mm-hmm. I think it's more, more complex uh, we certainly have it as humans. There are experimental results that suggest that some animals, like you know, apes, have a certain kind of self-consciousness. You show them a mirror, mm-hmm. you put a mark on their forehead, they rub something off. Um, but that's really an open question, how far, how far down that goes. So I'd like to any, anyway keep those two questions separate.
0: In your research paper, uh, Consciousness and its Place in Nature, you describe some aspects of consciousness as easy problems and then you talk about the hard problem of consciousness talk to us about this approach of describing the challenge of understanding consciousness
1: yeah so different people mean many different things by uh, by consciousness and i introduced this way of talking about 20 years ago now one of the first international conferences on consciousness that brought together researchers from psychology and neuroscience and philosophy and any number of other areas. And one thing you would find is that people go in saying, I'm going to give you a theory of consciousness, but then it wasn't quite a theory of what you wanted. Mm -hmm. So I found it useful to distinguish the easy problems of consciousness, which are really problems ultimately about behavior Mm -hmm. and objective functioning. How do we discriminate information about the world? And how do we use it to control our behavior? How can we produce verbal reports of it? How can we bring information from different modalities like seeing and hearing together? All of which are tough questions for the sciences, but the sense is those aren't the big metaphysical mystery. The biggest mystery, the hard problem of consciousness is why is it that all this processing and functioning in the brain is accompanied by subjective experience? Mm -hmm. Or as we were just saying, why is there something it's like to be Mm -hmm. a conscious being? And right now, the the standard methods of neuroscience and cognitive science are quite well suited, to getting a grip on the easy problems, Mm -hmm. the behavior, the functioning, and so on. But when it comes to the question of why is all that accompanied by subjective experience, it seems like the standard method doesn't seem to get that much of a grip Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. but even if we look at the simpler aspects of consciousness uh, still uh, uh, there are a number of questions that we don't understand that your experience uh, from those like you know of those simpler variables or attributes may not be same as my experience so there are differences at that level also
1: yep i think uh, different people's consciousness is going to be different in different respects some aspects may be very similar mm-hmm. some aspects may be different so i don't focus either on the necessarily on what's different between people or what's the same between people i just think it goes on a case-by-case basis but you know i, f- I suspect for example that when we feel pain there'll be some similarity to the uh, to the painful quality mm-hmm. when we see colors there may be something similar com- more complex levels of our emotional experience and our stream of thought things may be uh may be quite different so consciousness i think of is really a massively variegated inner movie with all these different dimensions, not just seeing and hearing like in an ordinary movie, but touch and smell and taste and a sense of one's body and sense of emotion, memories, thinking. All this is running through one's internal conscious stream, stream of consciousness, and one can break it down into many, many different dimensions and aspects, as you say.
0: David, some researchers suggest that we can never solve the hard problem. Of consciousness and they present two reasons for that uh, one reason is uh, that our brains do not have the ability to process the complicated information that would lead to an understanding of consciousness and the second reason is that you cannot solve a problem if you are part of the problem as we all are conscious. We experience consciousness and we do not have the ability to observe consciousness from outside. So so we cannot solve this problem. What is your take on this argument that the hard problem of consciousness is unsolvable?
1: Yeah, I mean, some thoughts around here, I guess, are seductive. Someone once said that if the brain was simple enough that we could understand it, we'd be so simple that we couldn't understand the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, I don't sure, I'm not sure that I see a principled objection to systems studying themselves. We've mm-hmm. learned an awful lot about the human brain mm-hmm. with our brains and so on. My old thesis advisor, Doug Hofstadter, I used to think there was a paradox of self-reference mm-hmm. at the very heart of consciousness. It's like Gödel's theorem in mathematics. A system can't fully study itself. There may be something to that, but uh, that's not really quite at the core of my own... Uh, my, own approach. My own approach just focuses on the simple data of consciousness, the redness, the feeling of pain, the sensation of red, the experience. I can get a pretty good focus on them. The question is, how do I explain those? And in particular, how do I explain those in terms of processes in the brain? Because it looks like we have these two quite different kinds of data about mm-hmm. the world. Physical, objective data, the kinds we get f- through doing brain measurements from the outside, and the internal data of consciousness. And the question is, what's the link mm. between those? We're used to explaining everything in terms of physical processes and it works for so many things chemistry biology much of psychology but it doesn't seem to work terribly well for consciousness and that's why many people think of consciousness as this big challenge for the materialist view of the world and for science
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. now we know that there is no standard definition uh... of consciousness but if i just invite you and if i just ask you that how would you start defining consciousness well you know, with the really sense fu- of being—we we briefly touched upon
1: that. Now you're now you're defining it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> How would I define consciousness? Um, well, with the really fundamental notions in philosophy, sometimes it's a mistake to start too soon with a definition. What mm-hmm. is existence? Hmm. What is time? What is meaning? You know, these notions are so fundamental that any particular definition, like you say, the sense of being, well, a self con- sense of self, well, that will pin us down in a certain direction. But maybe you don't want to be too committed in a certain direction right at the start. So I define consciousness fundamentally as experience, Mm -hmm. Uh, the experience of the world and the experience of the mind, what it's like from the lived first-person perspective. I quite like the formula due to Thomas Nagel that a system is conscious when there's something it's like to be that system, Mm -hmm. and a state is conscious when there's something it's like to be in that state. At the same time, all these definitions are probably ultimately circular. I'm not trying to ultimately define consciousness in terms of something simpler and more primitive than consciousness because I'm not sure there is any such Mm -hmm. thing. Consciousness
0: Mm -hmm. is one of the primitives Mm -hmm. in our conception of the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, In your view, does consciousness uh, have boundaries, your consciousness, my consciousness, or is this a fundamental property of matter which exists at different levels and is perhaps connected at different levels and perhaps becomes collective consciousness at different levels?
1: Well, the instances of consciousness that we know about in the first place seem to be tied to particular physical loci, like our brains, Mm -hmm. our bodies. And so I'm consciousness of the stuff that's going on around here Mm -hmm. in Dublin. Right now, I'm not conscious of what's going on in China, Mm -hmm. say, because my brain is here and not there. And on the face of it, my consciousness and your consciousness are are distinct, although they may be causally connected to Mm -hmm. some of the same objects in the environment, like, uh, say, that chair over there. Um, So that's some kind of connection, but that's not a deep connection. So it's an interesting question. Can bits of consciousness come together? Could there be a collective consciousness that's constituted by a society as a whole? I'd say in the first instance, we don't have data Mm -hmm. about that. We don't have the experience of collective consciousness. It could, on the other hand, we don't have data about the experience of consciousness in worms either, or in dogs. So, which other systems are conscious is to some extent a matter for a good theory of consciousness to dictate. And I certainly don't exclude the possibility that, uh, you know, roughly whether any kind of information processing might go along with consciousness, the more complex the information processing, the more complex the consciousness. Then it could turn out that at the level of a whole society, like Ireland or the human species, there could be some extremely complicated collective information processing and some corresponding collective consciousness.
0: David, this uh, concept of consciousness at multiple levels uh, seems very interesting. Uh, As we are discovering smaller and smaller particles, scientists have discovered that particles, uh, subatomic particles, uh, seem to somehow communicate and interact with other particles. So maybe there is a point that at that level, some sort of Consciousness exists. And then as we go uh, towards bigger entities, bigger particles, bigger objects, uh, maybe uh, then consciousness exists uh, at, at different level. Uh, and these particles somehow behave collectively.
1: Uh, certainly something exists at the level of particles. Uh... Whether there is consciousness at that level is kind of an open question. We, we don't immediately detect consciousness at that level, but I do take seriously the idea that consciousness may go all the way down
0: mm-hmm. somehow
1: to the fundamental level in physics. You know, you can already raise questions about humans. Mm-hmm. Are they conscious? Looks like it. Apes? Dogs? Cats? Flies? Worms? What about bacteria? What about viruses? What about cells? What about individual particles? I have at least There's the traditional idea in philosophy of Mm panpsychism. Panpsychism. Everything has a mind. Mm -hmm. The mind is everywhere in nature. And this is an idea that many philosophers and scientists have been taking quite seriously in the last few years. One advantage is that it potentially integrates consciousness into the natural order. Fundamental consciousness present at all levels rather than dangling outside Mm -hmm. the natural order of physics um, and so on. Another thought is that physics only characterizes its... Entities structurally or mathematically as a system of relations. It doesn't tell us about their intrinsic nature. Stephen Hawking once asked, what puts the fire into the equations of physics? And the panpsychist will say it's consciousness that puts the fire into the equations. And in fact, even coming from the science, there's been the integrated information theory of consciousness, which has been quite popular in recent years, put forward by people like Giulio Tononi, suggests that wherever there's some information processing this consciousness so even in very simple entangled systems there'll be some simple processing and therefore some very simple consciousness Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. now it is uh, very interesting to note that how uh, you use the concept of zombie uh, in in your research Uh, so if we create a molecule by molecule neuron by neuron replica of a person. That replica may behave like the original person but the replica will lack consciousness. So we say that the replica is uh, uh, perhaps in a state uh, that we call zombie state. Uh, Talk to us about that. Well
1: zombie is really a hypothetical idea in philosophy. Nobody thinks these beings can actually exist in our world but the idea of a zombie in philosophy is a physical duplicate of me or you. One that it's got a brain, just like ours, that walks and talks, just like us, but has no consciousness at all. Everything is dark on the inside, no subjective experience. So when I talk to you now, I think I, I see your behavior and your face and so on, and it sure seems to me that you're conscious, but I can't know this for sure. Seems, you know, but I know that I'm conscious for sure, but I can't know that you're conscious for sure. So that's to say that I can't rule out completely the hypothesis that you're a zombie. The brain, just like so, but no consciousness. That's to say, as philosophers put it, we can conceive of zombies. We can imagine them. They at least seem to be logically possible. Now, in our world, I'm not saying there are zombies in our world, or that we could actually make them. In our world, it seems you get a brain like this, then you get consciousness. So zombies kind of just provide a nice contrast for raising questions about consciousness. Why aren't we zombies? If you had all this physics in the world and all these brains, why did you need to have consciousness too? Why couldn't all of this have gone out in the, gone on in the dark? Without any subjective experience, as it would in a zombie, it didn't. But we don't know why it didn't. That's a way of posing the hard problem of consciousness.
0: Now, at this point, I want to touch upon a different uh, but a relevant topic. uh, And the topic is artificial intelligence. If we manage to make a machine that can store and process information the way we store and process information, and uh, that can... also replicate our emotional behavior, but that machine is not conscious, then a collection of such machines can live and function in a universe that does not have consciousness. So my question is, is it necessary to have consciousness in such a simulated world? And if there is no consciousness in, in, in this simulated world, How that simulated world is different from our world, where we experience consciousness?
1: Well, I think there are many deep questions about whether computers, appropriately programmed, could be conscious, um, whether simulated human brains in a computer would be conscious. Many of these questions also apply to brains. You know, it seems like you don't have to have consciousness to get a computer running. It also looks like it's not clear what the role of consciousness is in a brain. Why, if you get a brain going, do you get consciousness? We don't know the answer for either system. Um, I don't see what's worse in principle about computers or simulations than brains. Brains are made of the squishy stuff and computers are made of the the dry stuff. But uh, um, it seems to me there's probably the organization that matters and the organization may be relevantly similar. So I'm inclined to think that for, one way to pose the question is what would happen if you gradually replaced my neurons by silicon chips? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm gradually turn me into a silicon computer by downloading my parts a bit at a time via some nanocomputing. Um, You know, one view would be that my consciousness gradually disappears as this goes along and gradually fades out while my my behavior stays the same, if it's a good enough simulation. Another would be there's a magic neuron along the way. You replace that one, my consciousness just winks out completely. Or the third view would be my consciousness stays there the whole time. Mm -hmm. I guess I lean towards the view that my consciousness would stay there the whole time and therefore that even in a computational system there could be consciousness.
0: Mhm. Mm-hmm. And if we say that uh, that the consciousness that we experience is not real and it is just an illusion, then it is possible that we are living in a simulation.
1: Uh, I don't rule out the hypothesis that we're living in a simulation. I think we're conscious either way. So, I cannot doubt the fact that I'm conscious. This is the point that goes back to the philosopher Rene mm-hmm. Descartes. Mm-hmm. That's the one thing I'm certain of. Mm-hmm. So, I know I'm conscious, but about the external world, who's to say? So, Descartes asked, How do we know we're not being fooled by an evil genius who's making us think the world is there when it's not? The modern day version of that is, How do we know we're not in the matrix mm-hmm. with an external world simulation like that? And, you know, there may well be people eventually running giant computer simulations of giant universes. In which there will be simulated conscious beings so i don't rule out that i'm in that uh, i'm in that situation but i'm still but whatever happens i'm gonna have i'm still gonna have my consciousness
0: here at the core mm-hmm, mm-hmm. now again if we accept this argument for a moment that consciousness could be illusion okay and and or at least the outside world yeah. that we experience yeah. could be an illusion then my question is does the universe uh, n- 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 without consciousness like, like, it would have different properties, but a universe can exist without consciousness.
1: Mm-hmm. You might think a universe could exist without consciousness. Why couldn't one have all this physics without consciousness? Why, indeed, couldn't one have a universe just of zombies? Mm-hmm. In philosophy, we call this the zombie world. So, all the physics processing just like so, and no consciousness anywhere. It seems to make sense, but it doesn't seem to be our universe. Mm-hmm. Our universe has consciousness, right? So Draw the moral from this, that consciousness is just a fundamental element Mm -hmm. in our universe, in addition to all the stuff in physics. Mm. A universe without consciousness would be like a universe without mass or something, Mm -hmm. or a universe without gravity. Maybe there are such universes, Mm -hmm. but ours isn't one of them. Mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. And then it it, it actually takes me to my next question, that does the universe create consciousness that we experience, or the universe is just a physical and mechanical entity and it is something in the universe, perhaps us, the human beings that create experience of consciousness.
1: I'm not sure that I want to say that either of us create consciousness. I'm inclined to think consciousness is a fundamental property of the world that has been there all along, like mass and space and time. Create in the
0: sense of experience.
1: Or does the universe experience consciousness? I suppose I think I experience consciousness, and you do, so it's, it's us who experience it. Is there some experience at the level of the whole universe? Is the whole universe conscious? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's an attractive speculation. I, I guess I don't see terribly much reason to see why it should be true right mm-hmm. now. If the universe could talk to me or, or make a case that it's conscious, then, uh, then maybe, but uh, you know, I'd say right now the paradigms of consciousness are human
0: beings like you and me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if we have a simulation running on a computer where there are different entities that interact with each other and based on the data that they observe in that simulation, they act and react differently. They are not conscious. So in a way, we can say that that simulation has everything that a universe can have without consciousness.
1: Now, why do you say these simulated creatures are not conscious? they're going to have extremely complicated simulated brains about as complicated as ours with all the information processing going
0: on why not just say they're conscious too Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. this actually leads us towards my next question do you think that the machines of future will be conscious Uh, and perhaps uh, uh, we should touch upon the concept of singularity here Singularity. What is singularity? We talk about singularity. A yeah,
1: lot. well, this is the idea. The singularity is a special kind of event that some people think may happen once we get to computers as intelligent or mm-hmm. a little bit more intelligent than we are. Uh, the rough idea is that just say we get to the point when we can create machines more intelligent than us, then those machines will be better than us at it, most things. But one of the things they'll be better at is creating machines. Mm -hmm. So -hmm. they'll be able to create machines more intelligent than we can, which means they'll be able to create machines more intelligent than themselves. Mm -hmm. So we'll get them to level two. And these level two beings will be able to create level three beings and so on. And then you'll get this rapid spiral then. As soon as you've got machines a bit smarter than us, you'll have machines a whole lot smarter than us. Super intelligence if you like. And that's what people call the singularity. Mm-hmm. It's an idea that goes back to the British statistician, I.J. Good in an article he wrote in 1965. And sometimes it's dismissed and not taken seriously as some kind of religious concept. Rapture for the nerds, some people say. But I think there's actually an argument here at the core, which is one we should very much take seriously. And I've actually written an article on it saying, yeah, well, it looks, looks like it's fairly hard to resist this reasoning, so we should be open to the idea that eventually our successors will be artificially intelligent beings far far more intelligent than us that raises all all kinds of great philosophical questions Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. will they be conscious i'm inclined to think yes will we be able to upload our own brains into super intelligent machines so that somehow we are those successes you know maybe the best way to produce these beings is going to be from starting with a brain maybe uploading it onto faster and better technology and then modifying it maybe that's going to be a route to get there but once you do that then you have to raise questions Will there be a conscious being at the other side? And indeed, will it still be me? Will I be able to upload myself? Or if I upload my brain onto a computer, will it be somebody else? So these are extremely tough questions which go to the core of many of the traditional questions in philosophy. And they're going to be questions we have to answer. Mm -hmm. Uh, As pressing practical problems, one of these days if we're going to figure out how to handle the singularity when it comes
0: mm mm-hmm, mhm. Uh and do you think it is just a matter of time and singularity will happen at some point in future? I, th-
1: you know, I mean it's hard to know for sure anything could happen. There could be a nuclear war mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A, which would set us back technologically. That could be, you know, uh if nothing, high, yeah, assume, like that happens. Assuming there's no giant disasters, I think it's probably inevitable that we'll eventually have artificial intelligence at the le- at the human level. Mhm. Shortly after we have it at the human level, technology always advances. Mm -hmm. So shortly after that, it'll be beyond the human level. Mm -hmm. And shortly after that, that will lead to this spiral. So I'm inclined to think, yeah, it will probably happen. Now, I don't know what the time frame is. Some people like Ray Kurzweil, who's popularized this idea, say it will all happen by 2029 or, Mm -hmm. or something. Well, I think that's probably optimistic. Anyone who's actually worked in the field of artificial intelligence knows that progress is actually quite slow. But it wouldn't surprise me if we got to human level artificial intelligence by at least, say, the year
0: 2100. So, perhaps in a universe where they have achieved singularity, we are machines with artificial intelligence living in a simulation, uh, in a matrix. Uh, what is your take on that?
1: So, on this view, we are basically a simulation which somebody in the super intelligent universe. Is running just for fun let's try and simulate some really primitive creatures for the day just for fun maybe they're running whole universe simulations they mm-hmm. simulated the big bang and mm-hmm. we're just in the early stages and i think you know one certainly can't rule this out um it's probably the case that in a super intelligent super technological universe they'll be in a position to run billions trillions quadrillions of universe simulations and maybe we're in that situation too it does provide an interesting perspective on theology when people speculate on the properties of the creator you know people think about our creator being a uh, our creator being a uh, god well maybe it turns out our creator is a a super intelligent computer in the next universe up maybe it's just some smelly teenage hacker in the next universe up who's you know not so super intelligent but has good technology and is here running a simulation which we're which we're part of the next question is how we could ever know
0: if it's a good enough simulation we may never know Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, coming back to the research on the subject of consciousness you suggest in your work that there is more to consciousness than just physical processes in the brain and that neuroscience alone is not enough to understand consciousness
1: Hmm. I think neuroscience will be a huge part of the explanation of consciousness but the question is can you get to consciousness just by putting together brain processes and and then someone say well, once you've got that you have to have Consciousness And I think not, because basically the worry is that neuroscience will only ever give you a solution to the easy problems, the problems of behavior. What the system does, this complicated interaction between neurons will produce certain effects, that's the behavior, but that's the easy problems. This problem of subjective experience is a different kind of problem that it doesn't get to. One way to raise a difficulty is all the neuroscience needs to be consistent with the hypothesis that we're zombies walking, talking, functioning creatures without consciousness. And consciousness just seems to be a further fact that distinguishes us from from zombies. So I think instead what we've got to do is not try to reduce consciousness to a process in the brain, but correlate it with processes in the brain, because there's undoubtedly a very strong connection, and try and formulate a theory of what kind of physical process gives rise to what kind of consciousness. And this is actually what's happening right now Mm. in the Mm. the neuroscience. Mm. Ultimately, understand the fundamental principles which underlie that. I call them psychophysical laws, laws connecting brain processes and consciousness. And those will be like fundamental laws of nature, on my view, like the law of gravity mm-hmm. that connect the fundamental property of consciousness to properties mm-hmm. in the rest of the world.
0: Using neuroscience, we are trying to map human brain and we are trying to find neural correlates uh, for all brain activities and for all experiences. Do you think that one day we may find a neural correlate of consciousness. And this neural correlate of consciousness will tell us where does consciousness originate and how does it function? You
1: know, this has actually been one of the big advances in neuroscience in the last 20 years or so. Mm-hmm. There's a thriving research program of trying to find the neural correlates at least of different aspects mm-hmm. of consciousness. So for visual consciousness mm. people have been I've manage- managed to pin it down to certain areas looks like it's not the retina it looks like it's not the beginning of visual processing in the visual cortex but maybe it's a bit it's a bit later and likewise we're doing it for other areas so it's still early days but people are getting fairly good at the correlations one thing we also find though is the more you do on correlations finding the areas which go along with consciousness the clearer it is that that's not an explanation it's just, well, yep, when this area lights up, then you get consciousness. But why? Mm-hmm. What is it about this area that gives you consciousness? Something about the information processing, maybe. Something about the role. But, um, so it turns out that finding a neural correlate of consciousness is useful. But what we really want to do is ultimately understand the fundamental principles that underlie it. So, you know, there are theories which are being put forward. Uh, Giulio Tononi's information integration theory says it's all about how much information is integrated. Those areas that give you consciousness are good precisely because they involve the most integration of information. So he has a measure. He calls Phi. Mm -hmm. When Phi is high, you get consciousness. When Phi is low, you get at least much less Mm -hmm. consciousness. And that would be the status of some kind of fundamental law of consciousness. High Phi, Mm -hmm.
0: high consciousness. I think that's the kind of principle we're looking for in the background. But do you think eventually we will find something in brain, or maybe we have to look at somewhere else. I don't think we're going to find
1: glows of consciousness directly in the brain. but I do think we'll find is correlates mm-hmm. of consciousness. We'll come to eventually to understand the physical processes in the brain that go along with consciousness. When they're active, you're conscious. When they're not active, you're not conscious. Then the extra thing we're going to need is understanding of the fundamental principles that connect the brain mm-hmm. to consciousness. So maybe it's Tononi's principle. Mm-hmm. Consciousness goes along with high integration of information. Then we'll find the areas of integration of information in the brain and we'll say, ah, that's what gives you consciousness. But it won't be a simple matter of just pointing your consciousness meter at the brain and detecting it. It's going
0: to be a much more complex, indirect process than that. In your view, to get to a theory of consciousness, a theory that can explain relationships between objective data and relevant subjective experiences, what type of research is required? Uh, Do we need a new framework and perhaps a different scientific and philosophical model?
1: I think we probably need a revolution or two or three along the way uh, because it's still quite early days. But I would say that, nonetheless, what do we need for now? What we're seeing now is we're seeing neuroscientists doing experiments on consciousness in a way that didn't happen 30 years ago. So that's real progress people putting brains in the brain scanner and trying to correlate what they find there with people's reports about consciousness. Well, that's, um, that's major progress. We've got psychologists who are taking consciousness seriously. We need the philosophers to step back and integrate all this and say, what's it telling us? What isn't it telling us? And I think we need the speculators, the speculative theorists to try and offer big picture models of how consciousness relates to the brain. And that's you know, there's no shortage of speculations there. Um, there's a few grand theories which have achieved achieved some attention Roger Penrose and Stuart Hameroff have suggested bringing in quantum mechanics Giulio Tononi brings in information and so on, but I'd say we're probably not there yet for finding the big framework that pulls all this together, and for that I think it's just going to be a matter of let the science run its course, let philosophers do their thing, someone's going to have to come up with a brilliant idea somewhere along the way much as Newton did in the case of physics, or Darwin did in the case of biology, and I suspect we're not there yet
0: mm-hmm. for the
1: case of consciousness. We're still waiting for our, New- for our Newton or our Darwin.
0: How would you describe the relationship between science and philosophy? A number of philosophers don't agree with strict approach of scientific method, uh, which is based on observations, and a number of scientists dismiss uh, philosophical approaches to study subjects such as consciousness. Uh, what is your take on that?
1: I don't like to draw any hard and fast distinction between philosophy and science. The fact is most scientists have philosophical views. Mm -hmm. The range of of views among philosophers and among scientists are about as broad as each other. So many, many philosophers are very pro-scientific. I'd say it's the dominant approach Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. philosophy these days is to take science extremely seriously and to want all philosophy to be at least consistent in and maybe grounded in experimental work Mm -hmm. and the sciences. So the model of the philosopher as the fussy old old person in their armchair that thinks science is is a load of nonsense is I think that's a very ancient stereotype which doesn't describe uh, philosophy of today. At the same time, science doesn't answer everything Mm -hmm. on its own. To get from scientific data and scientific theories to answers to the big philosophical questions about what is consciousness, what is meaning, what's the nature of existence, what's the difference between right and wrong, you need to go beyond the data. Mm -hmm. And you need to go beyond just simple scientific theorizing. You've got to take it some further philosophical steps. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I don't mind whether those steps are taken by philosophers or -hmm. by scientists. All I care about is when they're done. Mm -hmm. They're done well. And there are some scientists who have really contributed to the philosophical enterprise here. Certainly in the case, say, of physics. People like Einstein and Bohr and Schrödinger and Heisenberg were all great philosophers. And I, I think one sees that happening to some extent with consciousness too. But at the same time, I think there's a big role for the philosopher to play in just analyzing all this reasoning and figuring out what's going on.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But again, uh, uh, coming back to this grand theory uh, uh, or the framework that will uh, take us to that theory, do you think that the collective effort is required or do we need a new branch of science? What we've found
1: historically is that almost every branch of science has actually spit off from philosophy. Mm-hmm. And what happens is you've got an initially philosophical question like, what's the nature of space, space and time, or how does human language work, or how does the human mind work, which cultivates huge disagreement in many different theories, and we don't really have a way to achieve consensus. And then somewhere, somebody develops a method, which actually does seem to make progress and does seem to produce certain kinds of incremental advances and consensus progress. So that's what some some someone like Newton did. Newton mm-hmm. called himself a philosopher. He was a natural philosopher, but Newton and his contemporaries came up with this ways of studying question questions about space and time in such a way that eventually a new field spit off. Physics is mm-hmm. mm-hmm. spit off from philosophy. Likewise linguistics spit off and psychology spit off and economics spit off once uh, we came up with means to make progress on these questions. I suspect we're at something like that stage right now on consciousness. We're not yet at the point of consensus methods and con- consensus conclusions. But one can hope that in the ensuing decades, as the relevant radical ideas ideas get developed for making progress, eventually we'll have an area of the, the science of consciousness which will also spit off in its way. But right now, we're at this pre-paradigmatic stage where I think there's a huge role for the philosophers and the more speculative scientists just to get a sense of where it might be going.
0: Do you think that the disciplines uh, such as uh, uh, metaphysics, spirituality, uh, and perhaps religious thinking, these disciplines also have something to contribute towards the development of uh, a framework uh, that uh, can then be used uh, to study consciousness?
1: I think they could have a role. I certainly don't want to exclude them from... Mm -hmm. Having a role for me, religion is not so central. I'm not religious myself, Mm -hmm. and I think one can raise all these problems about consciousness without being religious, without connecting it to a soul. At the same time, I think the spiritual traditions may have many insights to offer that could be useful Mm -hmm. for uh, the sciences and the philosophy. One that I'm quite interested in is comes from Eastern traditions that have studied consciousness from the inside. Mm -hmm. So, in the Indian and Tibetan traditions, Mm -hmm. people have been masterful at contemplating their own states of consciousness by meditation and other practices and analyzing, in a sense, the structure of consciousness. Now, we don't need to take on board all the metaphysical theories that these, uh, these views have gone towards. We might still want to take on board some of their methods, such as the, this method of studying consciousness from the inside, because a, in, a, in a way, it's a method of data gathering. Mm-hmm. We need ways to measure consciousness, mm-hmm. to write it down, to record states of consciousness, and so on. And we don't have methods for doing that for the data, for subjective data, which are anywhere near as good as our methods for objective data. So I think we can look to these traditions, at least for their methods. And some people actually right now are trying to integrate some of the practices from the spiritual traditions, from Buddhism, and so on. Some are integrating them with neuroscience. So, you know, put a, put a Buddhist meditator into a lab and see what's going on in their brain and try and bring the two perspectives together.
0: As the research on the subject of consciousness is going on do you think that we will gradually find more and more about uh, consciousness or do you think that this is uh, a uh, a type of problem where we may suddenly discover something huge
1: i don't know to be honest you know, who's to say Mm-hmm. how it will go. Maybe it would be wonderful if there would be a moment like a Newton or Einstein's miracle year of 1905 and we can say that's when it all mm-hmm. happened. And maybe there will be a giant insight like that, but maybe it will be more like, say, quantum mechanics, mm-hmm. which, which involved a series of insights over time in the 1910s, 20s, 30s, and gradually the framework developed. I'd be perfectly happy if it ends up going going that way. And, you know, mm-hmm. we are... Moving in an era where intellectual work is done more collectively mm-hmm. by the community and less by the by the single individual. Mm-hmm. That said, mm-hmm. I think there's still room for you know amazing insights by single individuals. So mm-hmm. I think we just have
0: to see. And finally, what are major developments and breakthroughs that you envisage in the field of research on consciousness, uh, say in next fifty to sixty years? Oh boy! If I, if I really knew, uh,
1: then I'd be out there doing it. Um, <laughs> I would like to think that at the very least we'll come up with a much better understanding of the fundamental, of the neural correlates of consciousness and of the underlying principles that connect physical processes with consciousness. What would be wonderful is to come up with a fundamental theory, a theory of the fundamental laws. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that'll happen between 50 years, but it could happen. I'd like to think that we'll have the ability to create consciousness artificially Mm -hmm. in computers. That would be a real advance. And you know, I'd like to think we'd have a ways of measuring consciousness in other people. So that for example, one thing that's just very primitively developing now is taking patients Mm -hmm. who've been diagnosed as in vegetative states, putting their brain in the scanner, and finding signs of consciousness in their brain. You could imagine that in fifty years that'll be so well developed. You could take someone in, in these states, put their brain in the scanner, map their whole brain, and figure out indirectly from there precisely what they're now consciously thinking and experiencing so that we could ultimately communicate
0: with them. That would be a major, a major
1: advance, and that's mm-hmm. something I hope we'll
0: have. Professor David Chambers, thank you very much for being with us. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show. Thanks. It's been a pleasure for me too.